Baptism, election and predestination, the role of women in church, how the return of Jesus will take place, homosexuality, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, even the divinity of Jesus. All those are issues that people who claim to be Christians disagree on. But someone must be right. Yet does it really matter? Can't we just all agree to get along? Can't we just agree to disagree? Do we have to draw lines? And if we do, where do we draw them and how? We saw in episode one that theology should be accurate, but how accurate and how much inaccuracy matters? In this episode of Thinking Theology, we're thinking about essential and non-essential theology. Is there such a thing? And how do we decide what is essential and what isn't? Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do we do about theological differences between people who claim to be Christians? Is every issue of equal importance? And how can we know? Well, when we look through the Bible, it's clear that not every issue is the same. In the Old Testament, some issues were dealt with far more seriously than others. For instance, mixing two kinds of fabric was not considered as being the same degree of evil as child sacrifice. The distinction between weightier and less weighty matters of the law is something that Jesus himself alludes to. He says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So too in his letters, the Apostle Paul talks about issues that are absolutely non-negotiable. He begins his letter to the Galatian Christians writing, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. In fact, the issue that Paul was addressing in his letter to the Galatians was so important that he even publicly opposed the apostle Peter when Peter got it wrong. Clearly, some truths really, really matter. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the Corinthian church should deal with one of the people who was among them, who was claiming to be a Christian, but who was sexually immoral, they should deal with that person by excluding them from the church. Paul says that they shouldn't even associate with that person. Paul's not talking about how they are to relate to people outside the church, but how they are to relate to people inside the church, people who claim to know the truth, who claim to be Christians, but who get it seriously wrong. They need to be treated differently to people who don't know the truth and who make no claim to be Christians. The reason, Paul says, is because their errors are like yeast 
A tiny little bit has a massive effect. One person who is badly wrong can end up destroying a whole church. Paul says the same thing in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 16. He talks about two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth and are destroying the faith of some. Paul says their teaching will spread like gangrene. It starts in one small area and then spreads and destroys the church by destroying the faith of more and more people. It's worth realising that destroying the faith doesn't necessarily mean making someone an atheist. Hymenaeus and Philetus were claiming to be teaching Christian truths, but the Jesus and the gospel they were teaching bore no relationship to the real Jesus. Again, Paul addresses that issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Paul's concern is not that they'll abandon the word Jesus or that they'll stop talking about the Holy Spirit or won't refer anymore to the gospel. His concern is that they'll abandon the real Jesus for a fake Jesus, the real spirit for a fake spirit, the real gospel for a false gospel, all made up in the minds of the false apostles who are infiltrating the Corinthian church. Some truths really, really matter. But it's also clear that not every truth is at that same level. Romans 14 is a well-known passage where Paul talks about dealing with theological differences. He says that there are some issues on which we shouldn't pass judgment. He says, for example, some people think we can eat anything. Others think that we can only eat vegetables. Some people think all days are the same. Others think that certain days are more holy. And Paul says we shouldn't condemn people for those differences. He says in verse 10, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Paul says that we shouldn't make an issue of some issues. The two concerns that he mentions are foods and days which would have been particularly important for people coming to faith in Jesus from a Jewish background. But notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that these truths don't matter at all. He doesn't say there's no right answer. In fact, he's actually surprisingly blunt in calling those who hold one particular view weak. He says in chapter 14, verse 1, except the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. The one who is weak, in this case, is the one who only eats vegetables. Again, Paul says in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is not saying there's no issue here. The coming of Christ means that the dietary restrictions imposed in Israel in the Old Testament are no longer relevant. That was God's message to Peter in Acts chapter 10. But Paul's saying in Romans 14, even though the truth is that we can eat anything, don't make such an issue of that. 
that you destroy your fellow Christian. But what does that mean in practice? A number of years ago, the American theologian and pastor Al Mohler wrote an article about what he called theological triage. Triage is the process that medical personnel use to establish the degree of care that a patient needs. They come into the emergency room and the nurse or doctor has to work out whether the patient needs immediate care or whether they can wait. They need to determine which cases are the most important and most urgent and which are the least important and least urgent. Al Mohler says we need to do something similar with theological issues. We need to sort them to work out how important they are. He gives three levels into which we can sort our theological issues. First order issues, he says, are the issues that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. They're the issues that if you compromise on them, you destroy the faith. Those are things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the full divinity and humanity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the authority of the Bible. Second order issues are those issues on which genuine believers disagree, but which create significant enough boundaries between believers so that they struggle to effectively work together. Among those second order issues, Moller lists things like the who and how of baptism. Baptists and Presbyterians differ on that, and those differences can make working together in one church difficult. Another second order issue Moller suggests is women serving as pastors. It's fair to say that most disagreement between serious Christians happens at this second level. The final group are third-order issues. Third-order issues are issues, Moller says, over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship even within local congregations. The kinds of things Moller puts in that category are issues like eschatology, that is, the view people have of the return of Jesus and what that will be like. He also mentions the interpretations of particularly difficult texts. Moller's categorization of those issues into three levels is helpful, but a scheme I find a little bit more helpful and a little bit more nuanced is a scheme that my theology teacher introduced me to that uses three old Latin terms. They are the essay, the Bene Essay, and the Adiaphora. Generally, I'm not a fan of Latin terms, but I found those three terms pretty helpful to remember. The essay are the things that are essential to the faith. That's the same as Moller's first order issues, the ones you can't compromise on. The last category is the Adiaphora. They're the things that don't really matter. Into that category, I put things like what time you have church, how often you have it, whether you have a band or a piano, they're all things that Christians have different views on and on which they might disagree strongly even. But they're really issues of preference and in some cases wisdom rather than right or wrong. The middle category is the Bene essay. The Bene essay are the things that are for the well-being of the church. What I find helpful about that category is that it acknowledges that while the truth might not be essential to the faith, it also acknowledges that not holding to that truth can hurt the church in some way. I would put into that category things like the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election, particular redemption, the perseverance of God's elect, 
You don't need to hold those doctrines to be saved. But denying God's sovereignty affects the way you live and the way you do ministry in a negative way. Denying those doctrines keeps the church from being as healthy as it might be. If you want to get an idea of how the doctrine of God's sovereignty can affect our evangelism, you might like to read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. But the point is that talking about the Bain ASA or well-being of the church is helpful because it clarifies that holding or not holding those doctrines does matter, but it doesn't matter so much that you've abandoned the faith. So how does that category, that Bane essay category, line up with Al Mohler's categories? The answer is that I think Al Mohler's second and third order issues both fit within the well-being of the church category. And what often causes divisions between Christians is how important a particular issue is seen to be for the well-being of the church. For instance, both Baptists and Presbyterians would hold that a right view of baptism is for the well-being of the church, but in such a way that they couldn't work together. I would agree that the doctrine of baptism is also for the well-being of the church, but in the church I belong to, people with different views on baptism can coexist. We've agreed that it shouldn't be an issue over which we divide. Like Paul in Romans 14, both sides probably think the other side is weak. My believers' baptism friends probably think my position on infant baptism is weak and misguided, and they're hoping to teach me a better way. Likewise, while I love my believers' baptism friends, at some level I also hope that one day they'll come around to what I think is a better way of reading the Bible. But I don't condemn them for holding a different view, and they don't condemn me. So the Bible does make distinctions between things that are absolutely essential and things that are not. And we've seen some helpful categories into which we can sort different issues. But the final question to consider is, how do we decide? How do we decide what things are essential and what things don't matter at all and what things are for the well-being of the church? That's an important question because, as Mola points out, one of the problems that we have as Christians is that we put the wrong things in the wrong categories. The failure of liberalism, he says, is that it denies that there are any first-order issues, while the failure of fundamentalism is to turn every issue into a first-order issue. The simple answer to that question, how do we decide, is that we take our lead from the Bible We need to see how seriously the Bible treats that particular issue. For example, when Paul rebukes the Galatians, the issue that he's rebuking them on is core to the gospel. They're moving away from salvation by faith to a salvation by works. In 1 John 1, the Apostle John says that everyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God is an antichrist. They're denying a fundamental part of the gospel. He also says later on that denying Jesus has come in the flesh and is from God is a fundamental error that puts someone outside God's salvation. Again, Paul's call to the Corinthians to expel the immoral brother shows us how we should treat issues of sexual immorality. Paul shows that sexual immorality and distorted views of human sexuality are first order problems. So too, the fact that Paul lists special days and certain types of food as not primary issues suggest we should take those as third-order issues. 
In other words, we need to take our guide from how the Bible treats the issue. Of course, the situation is not always that easy. The Bible doesn't give us models for disagreements about baptism, for example. But we can still learn from the Bible about the relative importance with which baptism is held. Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In the context, Paul is addressing the fact that the Christians in Corinth were thinking that some of them were better than others because they'd been baptized by Paul or by Peter or whoever. But Paul says, look, it's not about baptism. It's about faith in Jesus. Yes, baptism matters. Jesus commanded it to be done in Matthew 28. But it's not as important as genuine faith. Some theological truths do matter. They're essential. If we abandon them, we abandon the gospel. Other truths don't really matter much at all, while still other truths are not essential, but they do matter for the health and well-being of the church. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love you to subscribe. Next time, we'll be thinking about the Bible as our source book for doing theology. How does that fit with the work of the Spirit? And how does it fit with things like church councils and creeds and confessions? Please join me then. Thank you.